I encourage you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're in Nehemiah. We've been looking in uh, Nehemiah at the Rebuild series, talking about how uh, God raised up a hero to rebuild not only the wall, but even the people. And today we're going to look at the unique challenges that go with that. I dare say what we're going to look at today will look a whole lot like a Jason Bourne movie when we read it. So Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, uh, Nehemiah has been building the wall with the people, and look at what happens as they come to the very end of the project. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates... Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakapherim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, and in it, uh, excuse me, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. <laughs> then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. And it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in a way and sin and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nobadiah, and the rest of the prophet, prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On October 2nd, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey, and he didn't come out in one piece. 
Khashoggi was a U.S.-based journalist well-known for his reporting and who had fallen out of favor with the Saudi Arabian government. As a Saudi himself, he had actually been uh, uh, close to the royal family and served as counsel for his government. But by 2018, he was on the outs as a critic of the regime. He was working in exile, challenging the oppressive ways of dis uh, against dissent in particular, and he was unable to go to his home country because of fear of his life. So, he showed up at the Turkey consulate, and in what is now an infamous moment in the last few years, was murdered. Even worse, kind of like a slasher film, he was dismembered and taken from the consulate while people were looking for him, and while questions were being asked of the Saudis who denied any wrongdoing. The shocking part of this is he showed up at the Turkey consulate with an intent to, to, get, to get some help for some family legal business, and he thought things would be okay. Three weeks after the grisly event, the government finally took responsibility for what happened, according to the Turks, and under, uh, with, with Khashoggi going under the guise of a safe environment, a so-called death squad had flown into Turkey and had uh, met Khashoggi with the intent of killing him at the consulate. The Saudis arrested 11 people and put them on trial for murder. Several were convicted. All the while, watchdog groups said that the mastermind of the events was actually never really named. Khashoggi's death was a very publicized case of intrigue and of subterfuge, kind of like a, a series of James Bond villains Evil forces were at work in his life. Intrigue and subterfuge by a James Bond villain doesn't just happen in our day. It doesn't just happen in the movies with the latest James Bond movie. It happened in biblical times too. Nehemiah, our hero, faced extraordinary challenges of tradecraft, side door attacks, and espionage from the enemy. And today... In Nehemiah 6, we're not only going to see that subterfuge and espionage, but we're going to see how our heroic leader handles the wiles of a crafty enemy, even villains who are out to take his life. So, our question for the day is this. When, when lies and resistance come our way, or come our hero's way in subterfuge, how does our hero respond to the challenge? What gospel truths can we learn when our enemy uses spiritual tradecraft to try and stop us from following Jesus. You can find the outline on the screen. Uh, there will be three Ps today. I'm going to be a preacher for you on how we can respond along with Nehemiah, and that will be perceive, pray, and push through in a kingdom that prevails. Well, actually, that's four Ps, right? So, so let's remember where we are in the story. Nehemiah and the Jews had spent months rebuilding the wall at Jerusalem, and it had been torn down 140 years before by the Babylonians. In that time, 140 years, nations had used and abused the people of God and had used and abused the city for their own purposes and gain. Nehemiah was leading the people to rebuild that city, starting with the wall, and to rebuild, more importantly, their heart for God. And surrounding nations, while watching this, were not happy about it. They weren't happy because 
This was business for them. It was going to be bad for business for them in the end. So they resisted in every way imaginable. Still, despite all kinds of trouble in Nehemiah 6, uh, the people were on the edge of finishing the wall. I mean, they were right at the edge of being done with it. All they had to do was rebuild the doors, and Jerusalem will be a fortress, the beginning of a renewed city of God. So, what did the enemy do as a result, as a way to create subterfuge for the people? Well, led by Sanballat, the Samaritan, to the north, they led a last-ditch effort to stop the work by a series of espionage actions. In verse 2 and 3, you see that right off the bat. Look at that with me. Verse 2 says this. It says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So this is scary stuff, actually. Uh, it's like the Saudis with uh, Jamal Khashoggi. In a world of espionage, Uh, In the world of espionage, they call tricks and deception tradecraft. And chapter 6 has three straight tradecraft moves in them to get to Nehemiah and the people and to stop the work in the process. The first tradecraft move shows up in verse 2 and 3. Sanballat and his evil alliance tries to get Nehemiah to meet them in a neutral place outside of Jewish territory under the guise of diplomatic peace talks. Their intent, however, as we see, was actually to entrap him, maybe even bump him off in a kind of bait-and-switch move. Nehemiah is on to them, and he basically responds in an amazing way. The way he responds in our text is really cool in verse 3, if you look at it. He says this, And I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? The thing they wanted was the work to stop. And he said, I'm too busy to meet with you. i got to finish this wall and get the work done. It was a little bit of a dig from from, um, uh, Nehemiah to the people. The second tradecraft move comes in verses 5 through 8, where Sanballat and Geshem, the Arab, put out an open letter to Nehemiah, claiming that he wants to be king. Uh, that Nehemiah was doing all of this rebuilding to set it up so that he would be the Messiah. That's what he was after. Now, you've got to understand what an open letter does. An open letter in the ancient world is a letter that anyone can look at. And it's like this official of a nation, Sanballat, sent in a, uh, a letter to an official of, of another nation, in this case the governor, uh, Nehemiah, And then he posted it, not only in a personal letter, but posted it on Facebook and posted it on Instagram where everybody could see. And what was said about about Nehemiah wanting to become king was outright slander, was a false accusation, even propaganda. And Nehemiah, as we know, wasn't looking to be king. In fact, if we go further in chapter 7, those first verses of chapter 7, we find that Nehemiah does the opposite of what a king would do. He gives up power as governor, and he, like George Washington, and after his second term in office in a famous move, he hands power over to trustworthy officials, showing that in the end, he wasn't about power. He was about service. 
So Nehemiah responds publicly to these false accusations, and he says quite, that you are quite literally out of your mind, uh, Sanballat. You're making things up. And that brings us to the third straight tradecraft move that comes in verses 10 through 13. Here, Sanballat and Tobiah hire a false prophet to give bad counsel to Nehemiah in order to discredit him. Now, the false prophet told Nehemiah this, prof- uh, this kind of prophecy in a poetic way. If you look at the Hebrew, it's very poetic, you know. And, it, and he's saying, they're going to kill you, they're going to kill you. And repetition is a poet- poetic form. But it's really, he's trying to speak from God. That's what this false prophet is doing. And uh, the result is he encourages Nehemiah to hide in the temple. Now, at first glance, you think, well, what would be the big deal of hiding in the temple? That seems like a wise mood if, in fact, they're out to kill him. But you've got to know, as a eunuch and a non-Levitical Jew, Nehemiah was not allowed to go into the temple, uh, especially to hide out and live. That would be like King Saul making offerings that only priests should offer. It wasn't his job or place to do that. So Nehemiah's response to this tradecraft move was to say, no way, Hosea, to this false prophet. I don't want to die before God by treating his holy place in this way. Now we look at these three moves, these three tradecraft moves, and we can't help think that this is better than a Jason Bourne movie where corrupt powers in the CIA try to get Jason Bourne But he already knows their playbook. He outsmarts them. In this case, the enemy is working from the side door through lies and manipulation to take Nehemiah out to stop kingdom work. But Nehemiah perceives the wiles of the enemy. That's really clear in our text. He perceives them. And here's why, guys. He sees with the wisdom of God. He sees what is actually going on in the truth And responds knowing the playbook. And what is his response all three times? You ready for this? It's a holy no. A holy no. When Satan tempts us, we respond with a holy no. I'm not doing that. I'm doing what God has called me to do. Now what's this got to do with us? Our enemies are sin Satan, and worldliness coming at us individually and corporately as the church to deceive, to tempt, so that we, so that uh, Satan might take us out in our kingdom work for Christ. So whether it's at home or in our marriages or at work or, yes, even here in, our, in the church, 1 Peter 5 says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. See things. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Christians should be wise to Satan's ways of taking us down and stopping the work. What Sun Tzu's Art of War War says, if you're going to go to war, you've got to know your enemy's strategies and ways. Our job is to get educated, to learn from the Word, Satan's strategies and ways, and to give a holy no 
to his temptations and to his lies. So that begs the question for us today, what are some of the ways Satan takes us down as people, even today? Well, I want to highlight two, and there are many, but I'm going to highlight two today. And the first and second one are this, discouragement and division. Discouragement and division. Satan would like nothing better than to discourage you with bad news, with losses and hindrances, and with lies. Now more than ever, we who follow Christ must ask this question regarding things we hear. What is true according to God and his word? What's the gospel hope that we have according to God and his word? What is my job for Jesus right now no matter what's going on? That's exactly what Nehemiah was getting at. He said these lies are not true. God's called us to do this work, and we're focusing on that. The gospel is he's building his kingdom, in this case, in Jerusalem. The wonderful thing about Christianity is that we dare to ask what is true about not only the world and things we hear, but even about ourselves. And that's what makes Christianity just radically different than other religions, is it gets to the real heart of who we are, before God and what's going on in ourselves. Now, Satan would certainly love to discourage us, but he's got one other way that he'll come at us, and it's in division. Division. Division, I think, is one of Satan's top strategies when he gets Christians together. That's what he goes after. And that's true not only throughout the Bible, but in Nehemiah as well. And in a book I highly recommend in our season of temptation, C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters portrays conversations between a senior devil, Screwtape, and his protege devil, Wormwood. And he tries to coach him, to teach him how to tempt and divide believers. In one of his letters, Screwtape talks about how, you ready for this? Politics can play a role in temptation and division. Listen to what he says. Screwtape, speaking to Wormwood, says this, Let the Christian begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce. Whew, that's good stuff. Satan will use the latest movement, the most compelling worldview of the day in an attempt to overtake our Christianity. And the result is almost always division What are the things that are capturing your imagination right now? I'm not saying don't think about the things of the world and the big issues that are coming up and that we all wrestle with. I'm saying what has its tendency to overtake a gospel view of Jesus as Lord building his kingdom and gathering his people together? You see, the art here is we've got to learn how to be watchful. How can we be watchful? 
Well, let's learn from our praying conference, our praying life conference last week. We ask God to help us see. You want to know how you become wise? The first step to becoming wise is to say, I'm not wise. I'm not wise before you, Lord. I need you to teach me what real wisdom looks like. You ask for wisdom, and God is eager to grant it because he's a father who wants to teach us the truth and his wisdom on what it looks like to really follow him along the eternal road to the celestial city. God lays out the truth in a way that he brings life to us. And you got to know, Jesus himself had this kind of wisdom, and he wants to teach us that wisdom. Remember Jesus? He was constantly berated by the efforts of the Pharisees and scribes to entrap him and to entrap him in his teaching. But he always responded with the greatest wisdom and truth because he was the truth in the flesh and is the truth in the flesh. So, Nehemiah was on to the wiles of the enemy, seeing with the wisdom of God. But there's something else he does in our text that's intriguing. He was emotionally intelligent about how all this was affecting him and the people. Look at verse 9 in our text, what that says. Verse 9 says this. It says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Three times in our text, Nehemiah names the intent of the alliance of evil and what they wanted in, in and among the people. Sanballat and company were trying to stir up fear among the people and in Nehemiah. Fear stops our work. It stops our, our work for Christ in our marriages, in our friendships, in our vocations. It stops everything in its tracks. And Satan would like nothing more than to stir up fear about our nation's future, our broken family relationships that we all struggle with, perceived enemies in the church, and even potential persecution that may come in our post-Christian culture. And he wants, to cause us, he wants to cause us to pull back and hide. Let me ask you guys something today. How do you respond to fear when you feel it? How do you respond to fear when you feel it? What's the first thing you do? And I'm asking you this for a reason. Because that's often a challenge for us is understanding the first place we run to in our fear. I mean, there's been so much thrown at us the last few years in culture and in COVID that many of us run to distraction, looking at our phones or numbing through entertainment. Some of us respond to fear in anger. <laughs> As a young man, I not only early on struggled with that kind of anger and response, but as I got older, I would often respond to fear in withdrawal and silence so as not to hurt people's feelings. Now, as a middle-aged man, in my flesh, and especially with a lot of skills and life experience under my belt, you know how I usually respond to my fear? Competency. Do something I'm good at. Make me Do something that I feel like I'm in control of. Just get busy with that. What about you? 
in your fleshy moments, what's the first thing you tend to do when you're afraid? Pay attention to that. Nehemiah did. And you notice multiple times in our text, he redirected his fear to the proper place. After he recognized his fear, he prayed. He prayed. He went to God with his fear. He handled his fear in the presence of God. You know, if you look at most of the Psalms, you'll find that the psalmists were very honest about their fears with God, asking him to help them. So if wisdom is learning, the art art of wisdom is learning to say, I'm not wise and asking God for it, dealing with fear is similar. You come clean with the Lord and say, I'm afraid. Now, you got to know, for some of us here, those are words we do not want to use because we got the machismo thing going. There's only a few of us men in the room today that have that struggle, and I am one of them. But I got to ask you, when's the last time you came clean? You came clean with the Lord about your fear. Is inappropriate anger that you regularly express just a cover for your fear? The number one exhortation of Scripture is actually not believe, although that's all over the place, the call to believe. It is do not fear. Belief matters, but the fear of men is the thing that derails us. Prayer about our fear recalibrates our fear from men who are actually small to the fear of the Lord and all of his greatness in seeing who he is and his might and sovereignty. Prayer in the fear of the Lord is what gives us courage. And if you're a leader in any capacity, in your home or work or even the church, the spiritual art of dealing with fear is knowing what to do next. We pray. We pray in the face of our fear. We go to God with it. And Nehemiah goes on to pray for strength of hand. He goes on to pray even that God would remember Tobiah and Samballot in a kind of justice sense of remembering. But I will bet, I'll bet, he prayed with a smile. In the movie Gladiator, I've got to bring up Gladiator, okay? Give me, you know, it's going to happen. There's this great scene where the power-mongering coward and emperor Commodus talks to Maximus about fear right before their fight to the death. Commodus says this famous line, and I quote, that Maximus was the general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an emperor. And this is what Commodus says, striking story. But now the people want to know how the story ends. Only a famous death will do. And what could be more glorious than to challenge the emperor himself in the great arena? And Maximus says, you want to fight me? And Commodus says, why not? Do you think I'm afraid? And Maximus says, I think you've been afraid all your life. Commodus says, unlike Maximus the Invincible, who knows no fear, and Maximus responds, I knew a man who once said, death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. In other words, Maximus was afraid, but he chose to smile with courage 
in the face of fear. Folks, the only way you can ever smile in the face of fear and death with Nehemiah is you tell your father about your fears. And remember that he has sent a resurrected Savior and Defender to come to you. What does the Father do with your fears? He calms your false fears with the truth. But for the real stuff, he actually defends us. He stands up to the bully uh, and sends a Savior in the process. Christ our Savior was resurrected from the dead and conquered the thing that we all are finally afraid of in the end, death itself, the final enemy, and he's conquered it once and for all. He's our living Lord. And because he's alive, we don't need to be afraid, even when Satan brings the goods. Jesus is our fortress, our shield, eager to deliver us, even in the subterfuge. If you embrace that gospel truth, you can smile. You can smile right now. Jesus is alive, and that's all of hope for us as followers of Jesus. So, Nehemiah perceived the wiles of the enemy. He prayed through his fear with joy. But there is one last thing. He pushed through to finish the wall with the people. Look at verse 15 with me in the text. It says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. That's less than two months. Remember, the wall was like anywhere from 1.6 to 2.5 miles in circumference around it. This was no small wall. And yet it was done. The people were protected, and God did an amazing work through his people. And I got to tell you, the results are fascinating. What happens after they finish this wall is amazing. First, in, in, the, in the first verses of, uh, excuse me, later on in the chapter 6, it says that uh, the nations and the alliance, including Sanballat, experienced exactly what they were trying to do with God's people. Fear. They were afraid. They were afraid of God and his people and what God was doing amidst his people. That shows how God works. If an enemy tries to hurt God's people, God turns the tide in ironic judgment and gives the enemy exactly what they tried to do. Next, in a pitiful attempt to get the influential people riled up, Tobiah tried to get in and stir up fear with yet another version of tradecraft, stirring up the influential nobles of the city. Nehemiah saw it coming with more wisdom and more strength. And I'll tell you this, this is what happens. When you learn to resist the devil and he will flee, and that becomes a part of your rhythm of life and resisting temptation, you get stronger. You get clearer on what is true. This is what makes me proud of this church plant. We have endured a lot together in the last few years, planting in COVID. Are you kidding me? That's no small feat. Going online, moving around to different buildings. And I got to say, even the way you all helped this pastor and his wife worked through her own struggle with cancer several years ago. You stepped up. You kept building the wall. You stayed engaged in the ups and downs of mission. God has been moving through you. 
That brings us to our final application as followers of Christ and as a church here. This text is a testimony to the endurance of God's kingdom work. Satan will come at us from the front door, from the side door, from the back door, in every way imaginable to try and stop the work. However, while he tempts and distracts and even tries to hurt us in real ways, living in the fear of the Lord means we're called to endure suffering and pursue the good no matter what. This is what makes us different as Christians. When we're hurt, we return the hurt from people with good and grace. That's what makes us different. We're to push through in kingdom work for good and gracious giving. The world is saying, if you take me down, I'm going to hurt you even worse. They don't believe in an eye for an eye. But we're different. When someone hurts us, we love them back. I'm not saying enable sin. We'll talk about that another time. But I'm saying we're different in how we handle it. Here's the gospel. Our hero Christ pushed through to give us life. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he was resurrected so we could win. Colossians 2 today sums it up well. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. So if you're a parent here today facing all kinds of challenges, you don't have to solve them all. Just pray through your fear and be faithful to do the few things you're supposed to do as a parent with your kids. Be faithful in building the wall in your family. If you're struggling with a tough boss or a job at work, you don't have to be afraid of the money or the power or even losing your position or job and the way it'll change your life. Pray through the fear and persevere in working for the Lord first. You know that, right? You work for the Lord first. That's who you work for. And if church gets hard in COVID or even a church planning environment, building this church up over time, fear not. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Satan's going to throw a lot at us. He'll try and deceive us. Perceive and see his ways through the wisdom of God. Pray through your fears to your great protector and push through for kingdom work. Christ, our hero, has prevailed within us and for us. That's worth celebrating. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all come to you today. And we've been all tempted, and we've all been facing different things for the last few days or weeks or months, maybe even years. Satan's been coming at us from different angles, with the different wiles, even his version of espionage in our lives. And yet we pray that you'd help us to see, to see not only what's true of going around us, going on around us, but to see you at work in us and through us. Give us the courage to endure, to push through. Give us the heart to want to know you. We pray this, Lord, because it doesn't come and we need you to change us.
In Jesus' name, amen. How appropriate it is when we think of the onslaught of the evil one against us sometimes. It's sometimes it's really bad, sometimes it's not so bad. But whatever the case, it can be really discouraging or hard. But I've got gospel news for you. You know who wants to be with you today in the midst of that? Jesus. He wants you to come to his table today and meet with him and enjoy him. And the extraordinary thing about Nehemiah's story is that God's people were over and over again protected by this great God in amazing and unexpected ways. But here's the question. Who protected the people from themselves? Who overcame the sin of the people? Their own sin that got in the way. The Lord's Supper points us to the one who at the cross overcame Satan, even our sin personally, that we might enjoy life no longer as slaves to a a deathly kingdom, but children in a family with a father who says, come, be a part of this meal. A Christ who says, come, I died for you on the cross. A Christ who says, come, dwell on me today as you spend time with me. I want to love you, and I'll give you eyes to see things you've never seen not only of what Satan does, but far more importantly, of my glory. So I invite any who are followers of Jesus Christ, who call on him by faith alone to come to this table today and enjoy the table. Come with ways you've actually fallen into the temptation and listen to the tradecraft of the evil one. Bring that to him today because he wants you to come and enjoy his grace in new ways. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're grateful you're here today, and we want you to come back. But let me encourage you to ask this question. Who protects you from yourself? Who protects you from your brokenness? Who overcomes that for you? Do you think you can? How's it going thus far? We believe there's only one Christ who can rescue you, one who can actually bring you home and settle you in a safe place forever. That's Jesus. Let's go to that Christ now and pray and seek his face together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and all of us want to meet you now, so dwell in our midst as we enjoy both the elements that we eat and drink, remembering your body and blood at the cross, more importantly, your presence. Your Holy Spirit here with us, moving in our hearts. Lord, meet us now. In the onslaught, we need someone to be with us. And you're that someone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.